Kids are bad at doing stuff. Have you noticed this? Maybe you're a parent or an aunt or uncle or you work with kids for your job or you just encounter them out in the wild. These small humans live among us trying and failing all the time to do the simplest of tasks. Have you ever watched a child, sat down and watched them try and accomplish a task? Any task, it doesn't even matter what it is. Any task at all, they are bad at it. They do it wrong, they skip steps, they add in steps that don't belong, they invent new and unreal ways of doing things that you and I never could have even dreamed of. I myself have two of these incompetent creatures that I helped create and then now am responsible for. And bless their hearts, both of my kids love to help with tasks. And that's something that I want to encourage. That's a good thing. I want to encourage that and nurture that and keep that going. And it's also one of my jobs as their parent to form them into competent adulthood. And so despite it being highly frustrating for me, I am required to give them age-appropriate responsibilities in order to help them become functional adults. And this is not as funny anymore with my six-year-old. She is getting older, and so she's starting to do tasks in a more normal way. But it's super funny to watch with my two-year-old. He very much still does tasks in the weirdest and wrongest ways possible. He'll see me doing laundry and he'll grab a white shirt even though I'm doing a load of jeans. He'll see me gathering up the trash and he'll volunteer to take it out even though it's way too heavy for him. And when we actually get to the trash can, he is not even close to being able to reach it to put the trash up there even if he could lift it over his head. He'll see us vacuuming the house and he'll want to help push the vacuum, insist even on pushing the vacuum despite the fact that the sound the vacuum makes still scares him. He always wants to help us. In fact, in preparing for this very sermon, he kept insisting on putting his baby Bible on my stack of Bibles and commentaries and books I used to research for this sermon. And that one actually isn't too far off because his Bible does include several stories that we're going to look at today. And it also is just really, really cute. So good job on that one, son. But by far the funniest task failure that he does is when it comes time to put on his pajamas. Pajama time in the league house is an absolute battle every single night because no one but him is allowed to put his pajamas on, but he doesn't do it right ever. Every single time he gets the pajama pants, he puts both legs in one hole and then goes to take off and falls on his face. When we go to take them off and put them on the right way, because obviously we don't want him falling on his face, he screams at us. When we try to guide each leg into the holes the proper way, he screams at us. When we try to stop him from taking the pajama shirt and putting it on over the pants that he just put on and should know that that's not correct, he screams at us. All of this, all of this fighting, all of this wrestling leads me to just want to take over. I have this strong desire to just do the task for him, to avoid the kicks and the flailing arms and the wrestling match and just put his pajamas on for him as much as it would make him angry. But that is not permissible in his eyes. And so our compromise is to work together. He does most of the work and I guide and I help as needed and really as he will allow me. And what the result is, is partnership. We work together. 
Now, this is an obviously an intentionally silly example, but I can't help but wonder at the parallels between this situation that plays out every single night with my son and how God operates in his relationship with us. I'll go ahead and give you the big idea that we have for today right up front right now. And it's this. It's that our perfect God prefers to partner with imperfect humans in order to accomplish his purposes. But is that actually what we prefer? God prefers to partner with us, but do we actually prefer to partner with God? And I think the answer for us oftentimes is no. I think a lot of us end up on one of two ends of the extreme. Some of us actually would prefer for God to operate the way that I want to when my children do their tasks wrong. We want God to step in and take over and to simply do it for us. Maybe you've prayed something like, God, I keep messing up. I keep falling into this same pattern of behavior. Would you please just take it away? Or God, would you please just eliminate this temptation from my life? Maybe for you, there's this annoying or toxic person in your life and you've prayed, God, would you just orchestrate the circumstances so that I don't have to deal with this person anymore? Would you move them to a different department? Would you guide them to move to a different state? Would you just get rid of them from my life so I don't have to deal with it? For me, my prayers sometimes have been, God, would you please just speak to me clearly, even audibly, about blank? Maybe you've prayed that same prayer. God, what should I do with my life? Just tell me what to do. What house should we buy? What job should I take? Where should our family live? God, would you please just make it as clear as possible the answer to that question? See, all of these boil down to, God, just do it for me. And wouldn't that be nice if God would just step into the difficult situations of our lives and just solve it and do it for us? Many of us would say yes to that question, but others of us would say, no, we don't actually want that. See, for, for you, you are on the other end of the spectrum where your preference isn't, God, would you do it for me? But instead, God, I got this. When you slip back into the behavior patterns or temptation that you struggle with, that you repeatedly face, you simply resolve to work harder. I'll do better next time. I've got this. I will pick myself up by my bootstraps. Instead of asking God to move that person out of your life, you just decide, I am going to cut them out on my own. At big life decisions, you involve God in the process. You ask God, what should I do? God, what is your will? But do you actually listen to what God has to say? Or has your mind already been made up that you're going to do what you think is best for you? And while there's nothing wrong with asking God to step into the circumstances that we're facing in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with exercising our God-given freedom and authority in the decisions that we make in our life, are either of these things in line with the way that we see God operating in the story of Scripture? As we read through the centuries-long library of books that all tell one story, do we notice a God who determines every detail and does everything for His creation? Do we see a God who is completely hands-off and distanced from us, unbothered by the affairs of the people who He spoke into existence? And you should know the answer to that question because I gave you the answer right away earlier. 
what we see in scripture is not a God who's completely hands-off and not a God who micromanages every single detail. What we see is a perfect God who prefers to partner with imperfect humans to accomplish his purposes. What we see is a loving and patient father who is willing to let us put our pajamas on wrong, who's willing to let us scream and cry and throw a fit so that we can do it our own way. We see a, a father who's willing to listen to us when we want to quit, when we want to give up, and we just want him to step in and do it for us. We see a father who is always available and actively working alongside of us to teach us and guide us along the way as we work together in partnership. See, throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses a word that's often translated as co-workers or co-laborers or partners to express the nature of our interaction with God. And the image is actually of two people both expending energy together towards the same goal. God works and we work with him. God speaks and we obey. God breathes and we move. And it's that last one, breath, that I want to focus on together today. Wherever you're at right now, maybe just say the word breath. Even better yet, actually, let's take a deep breath together. I've been told by my wife that I'm not very good at breathing. I never actually learned how to breathe. So it's good to slow down and take a breath. But have you ever actually thought about how often God's breath is mentioned throughout Scripture and what happens as a result of His breathing? If not, that's totally fine because that's actually what we're going to look at today. We're going to take a, a look at three instances of God's breathing spread out across the pages of the Bible and look at what happened to the people in those instances and what that means for us today as we partner with God to accomplish his purposes. And so the first example, we find it all the way at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we get an overview of how God created everything that exists. But then in Genesis 2, it shifts into a more focused and detailed and zoomed-in version of God creating the first human, Adam. So take a look at verse 7 with me. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. God breathes, and the man becomes a person. Breath is life. The breath of God animates the man. It gives him life and energy and personality and movement and identity and responsibility. See, immediately after this verse, well, immediately after this verse, the author goes on a quick little detour and gives us some fun description, descriptions of rivers. But the first thing that we see happen after God breathes upon the man is that God, verse 15 tells us the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. God breathes and the man moves. The man is given a job and responsibilities. The man is given a task in his immediate context and is expected to carry it out in partnership with God. Now, we all know that God could tend the garden himself. We know that God could watch over the garden himself. We know that God could name all of the animals. We know that God could do everything that we see the man go on to do. And in fact, God could do all of those things infinitely better than the man does. And yet, that's not what God prefers to do. God prefers to give 
humanity, the authority, and the animating power of his spirit breathed upon them in order to partner with them in the work. God gave Adam a job, and God gave them Adam the power to do the job. And we see this same pattern multiple times throughout Scripture, but maybe none of them more similarly than in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. So if you have a Bible with you or your phone, flip through, flip ahead all the way to that one. But before we read it together, I want you to to take special note as we read through it um, of how strongly this event parallels the creation event that we just studied together. And so let's jump in together, starting in verse 19, where it says, That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, and then they are given responsibility. Those are the exact same steps and the exact same pattern that we saw in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God breathed um, the breath of life into Adam, and then God gave Adam a responsibility. That's exactly what we see here in this story. But even beyond just the same pattern, it's the exact same word that is used. In, two, in Genesis 2-7, when God breathed the breath of life into Adam, it's the exact same Greek word that's used here in verse 22, when Jesus breathes the breath of life into the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. Both times, God breathes and something happens. In fact, the, that, that, that word that's used in both of these stories, in, in common usage, when it was used at that time, it primarily referred to musicians, and specifically musicians who played the flute. Because you, we can see the concept there, right? That with a flute, you breathe into it and something happens. This is how I hold a flute. And you breathe into the flute and something happens. If you're trained and talented and know what you're doing, beautiful sounds are going to come out of the flute when you blow into it. If you're like me and have no idea what you're doing, you can still blow into the flute and horrible sounds will come out. But both times, either way, as a result of the breathing, something happens. Noise is made and the surrounding area is affected. The breather and the instrument work together to alter the surroundings. God breathes and something happens. Biblical scholar in his commentary, uh, J. Martin C. Scott, in his commentary on this passage, describes this event as nothing less than a new act of creation or a rebirth. As God breathed life into humanity, so Jesus breathes his continuing life into the disciples. It's such a beautiful parallel that Jesus' continuing life, the Holy Spirit, is what gives the disciples the ability to carry out what Jesus tells them to do here. Jesus says that they are being sent as Jesus was sent. Well, what was Jesus sent to do? Jesus was sent to bring people back to the Father. He did it through a variety of ways, through signs and miracles and healing and all of the teaching that he did and love and compassion and prayer and justice work and so many others. But all of those were tools. All of those were means to the end of unity with God. And that is the work that Jesus here extends to 
the disciples, and that is the same work that God invites us into today. To, to find and bring the people who are in our surroundings back to their loving Father. One last scripture example for us today is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Check it out with me. This is what it says. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, depending on the translation that you use, that you have right now, instead of it saying inspired by God, it may say that all scripture is God-breathed. And I actually think that one is a better way to understand what is being communicated here. What does that mean, though? All scripture is God-breathed. Does that mean that like God breathes and then his breath materializes into ink and falls upon the paper and then we pick that up and there it is, scripture? Does it mean that God breathed upon a pen, one of those cool like feather pens that they used to use back then, and it starts floating and scribbling along paper like something out of Harry Potter? No, of course not. It doesn't mean either of those things. Scripture being God-breathed means God breathed upon human beings and gave them the power and life and inspiration to write down God's thoughts. Scripture being God-breathed means our perfect God prefers to partner with imperfect humans to accomplish his purposes. Think of a sailboat. It's the wind that actually makes a sailboat move and go, right? Much like self-driving cars, it's not completely self-driving. The captain of the sailboat must still lift, hoist the sails. They must guide the sails, turn them, and make it steer in cooperation with the wind. But it's the wind that actually makes the sailboat go so that it may reach its destination, whether that's near or far. And that's the picture that we have here of the process of writing scripture. God breathed upon the authors across many different centuries and cultures and inspired them what to write and worked with them in partnership through their own personalities and particularities. But it was all in partnership in order to accomplish his purposes. And his purpose was to have a library of writings that would extend beyond its immediate context, beyond its surrounding culture, and would reach and extend across all of human history to show all of us and others across the world and across time what is true and right and good. So, is everyone okay? Everyone's still with me? There's a lot of Bible, I know. If you're like me, you're like, yeah, that's great, let's do some more. If you're not like me, you're like, thankful that we're, we're ready to move on and finally ready to answer the question that may have been on your mind this entire time. What does all of this mean for us? And so I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at exactly that. And what we notice in these three examples is that God breathes and then people are given a responsibility. But what I think is interesting is that they're all given a responsibility in a different context. And so I want to look at those three contexts and how we have this same responsibility in our same context today. Let me show you what I mean. Our first example was when God breathed on Adam and made him come to life, and then Adam was given responsibility for his immediate context. At first, for Adam, that was the garden. God specifically told him to tend the garden and watch over the garden. But Adam's responsibility didn't stop there. 
God went on to give Adam a wife and kids and a family. Your immediate context, the place where God wants to partner with you to accomplish his purposes, is the same. It's your home. It's the people who, that see you every single day. For many of us, that's our spouse. For others of you, that would include your children. For some of you, it's your parents or your grandparents. For others, it might be your roommate or whoever you live with. It's whoever it is that sees you when you're off the clock. It's the people who hear your alarm go off in the morning or the people who greet you when you walk in the door in the afternoon. And so our question is, what would those relationships look like in partnership with the God of the universe? Maybe for you, you're thinking, Devin, I live alone. There's none of those people. Guess what? You're not off the hook either. Our immediate context, just like it was for Adam, also includes our place of work, the place that God has put you for a reason in order to work and partner with God. It's your coworkers. It's the people who notice when you're late to work. It's the people who know when you take a sick day. And the question is the same. What would those relationships look like in partnership with the God of the universe? How would your job change if you began to view your work as a place that God put you for a reason, just like Adam, just like God placed Adam in the garden and gave him instructions to tend it and watch over it? What if you began to view your job as a place where God has placed you in order to watch it and tend over it and take care of the relationships that you have there and to work with him in partnership? How would your approach to your job change if you began to view it that way? How would it change if you began to view it as a place where God wants not just you to work, but to work with you? What would happen if you imagined Jesus as your coworker in the cubicle next to you or your partner on the big project for the deadline that's coming up? How would those things change if you began to view it as a partnership with God? The same is true in our immediate context of our household. How would your marriage change if instead of just looking at it as a partnership between you and your spouse, you began to view it as a partnership between you and your spouse and also in partnership with God? How would the way that we raised our children change if we viewed parenting as a partnership that we have with Jesus in raising our kids the way that God wants us to? If we offer our immediate context as a place for God to join us in partnership for his purposes, every relationship, every day of work, every interaction that we have, all of those things would be drastically different. The second example of breathing was when Jesus breathed on the disciples and they went on to change their surrounding context. So we have our immediate context and we have our surrounding context. But what is your surrounding context? It's your neighbor's. And right now, I don't mean that in the abstract biblical sense of love your neighbor as yourself. I mean your literal neighbors, the retired couple that lives next door, the family of elephants that stomps around above you all hours of the day, the college guys who rent the house behind you and throw late night parties. What if we viewed all of these people, our entire neighborhoods, our entire apartment complexes, our entire duplex, our entire dorm as a special project where you and Jesus can work together to bring them back to the Father. Because that is how God views it. But our surrounding context also does include neighbors in the biblical sense. It includes our city, 
the people who we pass on our commute to work, the people we see on Saturday at the farmer's market, the people that we interact with at the grocery store, the person who cuts us off in traffic, all of that is our surrounding context. How can we partner with God to work in our surrounding context of the people in our city? A few weeks ago, in my small group, Movement Church's own Isaiah Fielder shared a story with us of a time when him and his wife, Hope, were out in their surrounding context. They found themselves seated next to a mother and her child who were both obviously going through a hard time. The child was fussy and hungry and asking the mom for food. The mom was pretty obviously out of it and not able to respond to the child because she was suffering through her own illness or injury, just going through a hard time and not really able to be there for her child in that moment. And in that moment, Isaiah was moved with compassion and he began to pray for this small family. God, would you be with them? Would you bless this family? God, would you, would you meet the needs of this family? And that's a great way to partner with God in your surrounding context, to live in a state of what I've learned to call holy noticing where you are aware of the needs of those around you and you respond to those needs by inviting the God of the universe to act in the here and now on their behalf. But that's not the only way to work in our surrounding context because as Isaiah was praying for this small family, hope was being used by God as an answer to those very prayers. She shared snacks and water with the child and encouragement with the mother. And so Isaiah was praying and hope was being used of God as an answer to those prayers. Isaiah saw a need and prayed. Hope saw a need and acted. Now, I don't want to pit those two things against each other. Both are needed and helpful. We should be praying for the needs of the people that we see, the things that that people struggle with, the things that we notice and we feel compassion. We should have that move us to pray. But my fear is that sometimes we use prayer as an excuse to keep our surrounding context at arm's length. We should be praying for those needs, but we shouldn't stop at simply praying for those needs, and we should enter into the needs of those around us. We should be living our lives at the pace of love, slowed down enough to notice the needs of those who are created in God's image that we come into contact with on a daily basis. And we should care enough about the needs of our fellow image bearers that we begin to pray for the needs that we observe. But we shouldn't stop at prayer and we shouldn't, should never use prayer as an excuse to say, I actually am doing something. We should be praying. Praying is doing something. Prayer does change things. But we should also, while praying, also move beyond just praying and begin to act. And so how do we do that? How do we move beyond just praying for the needs of our surrounding context and actually enter into the needs of those that we come in contact with? I have found a quote that is short and sweet and to the point, but I find incredibly helpful and practical on this very thing. It's by a guy, you've probably guessed it, by the name of Dallas Willard. And he suggests that we simply watch for the hand of God to move and join in. Watch for where the hand of God is moving in your surrounding context, and then join in that work. We pray, we we notice the needs of those going on, and we pray to see where God is at work. We ask God to open our eyes to where he is at work in our lives every single day, and then we partner with God 
in that work. The last example that we looked at of God's breathing was upon the authors of scripture, which then produced a literary masterpiece that reaches out to the extended context of all of human history and the entire globe. Now, that's pretty big picture, right? The whole human history, the whole globe, the entire world, and that is the scope of the Bible. But that's so big picture, that's not us, right? Like, what is our extended context? See, God trusted the writers of Scripture to tell His story, and God continues to trust us to be a continuation of that story ourselves today. But what God asks us to do is different. He's not asking us to write Scripture. There's no First Devon chapter 11, and if there was, I promise not many people would like it. So God's not asking us to do the same thing, but the way that God works with us is the same. God partners with us through the Spirit to carry this same story further than we could on our own. So what does our extended context look like? Where could you possibly find like-minded individuals who are serving the same king, who are living the same story, who you can partner with along with God to tell his story and reach those that he wants to reach? That's right, baby. You're logged into it right now. This church, Movement Church, it exists to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And a natural part of growth is replication. You grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus, in your apprenticeship to Jesus, and then you bring other people into apprenticeship with Jesus. And then they go on to bring other people who are in their surrounding and extended context into relationship with Jesus. And this process of replication continues on under the power of the Holy Spirit and brings about Jesus's prayer that things would be on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that's all big and lofty. And so let me give you one word with many applications on what this can look like in our lives practically. And the one word is partnership. To reach your extended context, God invites you to partner with us, your local church, to take his story farther than any of us could on our own. So the one word is partnership, but it can have many applications. And I want to look at two primarily together today, but there are many, many ways that, that partnership with your local church can look. But the first that it should definitely be is financial. It should look like all of us giving cheerfully and sacrificially together the way that scripture teaches so that this body, this church, can then use those resources to accomplish what God has invited us to do as a church in partnership with him. Partnership should be financial, and then partnership also should be cooperative. What does that mean? What does it mean for our partnership as a church, as members of this church, to be cooperative? It looks like all of us giving of our time, talents, and energy in order to meet the needs of the church. It looks like asking ourselves the question, are you gifted musically? Don't keep that to yourself. Share it in partnership with this church. Are you good with people? Don't keep that to yourself, just building relationships for yourself. Uh, volunteer to greet at church or connect people who wouldn't normally connect or to connect uh, people into, get people integrated into the vibrant life of our church that happens between Sundays through small groups and through deeply connected relationships. Maybe God has gifted you with physical strength. 
volunteer to set up and tear down each Sunday so that we can continue to provide excellent environments each week. In short, this looks like you finding out how God has gifted you specifically, what talents God has given to you, and then taking those talents and giving them back to God through the local church. This is what I call the talent approach, finding out what you're talented at and then sharing that talent and gifting it back to God through the local church. But it's not the only approach. There's also the need approach. This approach is you see a need, you fill a need. Doesn't matter what it is. It may not be specific to what you want to do. It may not look like what you think you're good at doing, but it's simply something that needs done. And so you step out of your comfort zone and into that need. And in this one, I guarantee you that you will find God there. Stepping out of your comfort zone, even when it's something that you feel like you're maybe not good at, and simply doing it because you know that it needs done, God will meet you there. The department that I oversee, Little Movers and Movement Kids, Children, always is in need of people who are willing to serve their church regardless of if you think you're good with kids or not. Maybe for you, you see a need in our church that isn't being addressed right now. Step in there. Maybe for you, there's an area that you're interested in or that you feel called to and you want to improve that, but you don't necessarily have much experience in it. You also are needed. Reach out to me, reach out to Pastor Chris, reach out to the necessary people because we need you. This church needs you. Because when we all take that step, when a church of people take that step, all of us in partnership with the Holy Spirit, then have the ability to take the story farther than any of us could do on our own. And so to close, I want to challenge you to consider and pray about what partnership with God might look like for you. See, by definition, partnership takes more than one person. That's pretty obvious. And I spent a decent amount of our time together today laying out that on God's end, there is desire to partner with you. No matter who you are, no matter what stage of your relationship with Jesus you are, or how far along you feel, or like you don't feel that strong or that deep, or how unqualified you may feel, no matter all of those things, God wants to partner with you to accomplish His purposes. It is his number one desired method of accomplishing things on earth. It's baffling. It's sometimes inefficient. It can lead to some wonky outcomes, but it is the wisdom of God. It is the way that God prefers to get things done by partnering with imperfect humans to accomplish his purposes. We have thousands of pages of evidence that God can and does get things done in partnership with imperfect people. And so the question isn't, does God want to work with me? That's not the question. The question is, are you willing to be one of the people that God partners with? Are you willing to open the immediate context of your family, of your work life, of your workplace, of your daily routine? Are you willing to open all of those parts of your life up to partnership with God? Are you willing to allow him to correct you when you mess up? Are you willing to allow him to speak to the deeply ingrained habits of your life and do the hard but necessary work of changing? Are you willing to be vulnerable with the people 
that you are most vulnerable with on a daily basis and partner with God to improve that area? Are you willing to open your surrounding context of your neighborhood, of your apartment complex, of your city, of the people you come across, of your comfort zone of just keeping your head down and, and getting through the transactions as smoothly as possible? And are you willing to step out of your comfort and into what might be distractions, what might be invitations of the Holy Spirit to do some un uncomfortable things, to, to give to people in ways that you maybe wouldn't have considered before? Are you willing to work along with God in changing the lives of those that surround you? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone of simply attending and receiving from church and step into the challenging but ultimately fulfilling next level of giving and partnering through service and sacrifice in the life of this church? These are the hard but necessary questions that, that I believe we should be asking ourselves this week. And so my challenge today is this week to find some time to spend in prayer, in silence, spend some time alone and in the quiet to take some deep breaths and allow God to breathe His empowering presence into your life and to walk out from that experience ready to accomplish His purposes in partnership with Him. Let's pray. God, thank you for the life-changing truth that you desire to partner with us, imperfect as we may be, struggle as we may, as behind in our growth as we may feel like we are, you desire to partner with us regardless. And we see all throughout the, the pages of the story that you wrote that you do partner with humans. Even in the writing of your story, you entrusted imperfect humans to tell the story. And so I pray today that you would help that to land for each and every one of us where it needs to. Where your spirit needs to speak to each of us may be different, but the message is the same, that you want to partner with us to accomplish your purposes. So in the immediate context of our family and our work schedules and in the surrounding context of our city and our neighbors and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and all of those things, and in the extended context of our work as Movement Church to, to take this story farther than any of us could on our own. In all of those contexts, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us what that could look like in our lives in the days and weeks to come, how we can partner with you to improve all of those contexts and to ultimately fulfill your prayer while you are on earth for earth to become as it is in heaven. And so I pray that we would be a small part in that vision, that we would make Las Cruces as it is in heaven through partnership with you to fulfill your purposes. We thank you for that beautiful truth. We thank you for this time together. And I pray that you would speak to each of us as we go from here. In your name we pray. Amen.